Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back, everyone, to New Books Network. I am your hostess with the mostest, Dr. Lee Pierce, rhetorician, uh, today amateur comedian as well, and I'm excited to welcome Jack Black, who is the author of a new book out of Rutledge titled Race, Racism, and Political Correctness in Comedy. In what ways is comedy subversive? This vital new book critically considers the importance of comedy in challenging and redefining our relations to race and racism through the lens of political correctness. By viewing comedy as both a constitutive feature of social interaction and as a necessary requirement in the appraisal of what is often deemed to be politically correct, this book provides an innovative and multidisciplinary approach to the study of comedy and political culture and popular culture. In doing so, it engages with the social and cultural tensions inherent to our understandings of political correctness, arguing that comedy can be subversively redefined in our approach to PC debates, contestations surrounding free speech, and the popular portrayal of political correctness in the media and in society. This book draws on psychoanalysis, social psychology, philosophy, all the greats, and will be highly relevant for all kinds of listeners. So I hope you enjoy the interview, learn a little bit more about the British office. You're going to hear a lot of swear words. And now I'd like to turn it over to Jack, who is a senior lecturer at Sheffield Halam University. I'm sure I pronounced that wrong. Jack, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Yeah, all right. How did I do Halam, with yeah. Halam? Yeah, you got there. Yeah. Hey, yeah Halam. All right. Halam. That sounds good. Well, tell us about yourself. Tell us about the book. How'd you come to write it? Why do you love comedy? Why'd you choose The Office and not um, some other TV show as your case study? And What's the deal with psychoanalysis and how that is a let? Why did you choose that lens and not many others that were available to you? Yeah, brilliant. No, thank you. Um, yeah, well, I think quite interesting. Interesting there. You, you picked up on on sort of two themes: the sort of psychoanalysis aspect, and then also the comedy aspect. Um, I think I, I sound a bit daft saying this, but because um, I'm meant to be talking about my book, but if there was, I think there was one book which sort of sort of inspired um, the approach. I, I um, I take in this one, and that's Alenka Supanjit's uh, book, um, Comedy, the odd, uh, uh, the odd One In. Uh, and it was while reading that, obviously she's a, a, a well-known Lacanian um, psychoanalyst, and it was while reading that and, and her thoughts on comedy that I then started to think about, um, a particular, there was a particular episode from when I was younger, and I do remember it. it was from I remember watching The Office when I was younger, and there was a particular episode, episode one, season two, uh, which centers around the telling of a black man's cock joke. And I remember at the time, uh, you know, thinking about issues of racism and whatnot, I thought there was something about that joke that always stuck with us. And I was always laughing about it. And it was only obviously later uh, that you go on to study these sort of issues that you tend to sort of, sort of then start to draw the links between them. Um, so it was the coming together, really, of, of both an interest in uh, psych- uh, psychoanalysis, especially when applied to uh, popular culture and, and the media, and then also Alenka Sapanjic's book on comedy, where I started to sort of bring these things together. And I suppose it's an odd one. Well, it's, it's an odd one in the sense that I'm sort of, uh, I remember being a fan of The Office when I was younger. It's not, it's an odd one to watch now. And I've never seen the US one as well, which is, um, which is probably sacrilege to um, those in the US. But um, uh, yeah, I think it was drawing those things together, which was, which was where the, the interest for the book come from. Well, and the, and the British office, and I don't know if everyone knows this, but just to be clear, there was a British office before there was an American office. It's only, I think, two seasons in a special, and it is Ricky Gervais. So it's it's not nearly as like long in duration as the American office. And so a lot of people who maybe came to the office recently don't know there was ever a British version. But I right. think what yeah. was notable, and the reason why it's a really important text for this book, is that 
British comedy had not translated well to the U.S. for a long time, right? There were some some hits like with Monty Python, but generally speaking, that awkward, what they call situational comedy had just not transferred over. And then you started to see uh, Meet the Fockers and and the British office start to really pick up in the U.S. And now you see much more of that situational absurdist, uh, absurdist comedy. So in some ways, it's the best text to analyze because it it really transcended comedy barriers in ways that previous sitcoms had not been able to. Yeah, well, I think that was, I mean, I don't know where he said, because they did The Office, uh, him and Stephen Merchant, and then they did Extras, which was on HBO, I think. And I think it's interesting, isn't it? You get that link. HBO helped make it alongside the BBC. And essentially what was Extras, apart from a load of well-known, you know, American and British celebrities making fun of themselves. So um, I think it's interesting that, I suppose, yeah, the success of these shows sort of followed that really, but. Yeah, I think, I think, I mean, The Office was unique in that respect. Yeah, I mean, it sort of gave birth to uh, what we often refer to as the sort of mockumentary um, style where it's sort of filmed as a documentary and it's hard to tell, you know, very similar to like reality TV as well at the time. Um, so it had that sort of documentary feel, but was, I suppose, the only thing that had previously done that would be Spinal Tap right. or something. Which was also uh, British. Yes, mm-hmm. yeah, also British, which was interesting. Um, and I think, yeah, and I think that was, I think that's what something that made it quite interesting and quite unique at the time. Um, it's probably, it's probably been a bit overdone now. Yeah, think, well, um, and, and it's lost. And, and what you point out, and we'll get to this a little bit later, we should probably do some theory, but we, what you point out is the way that Gervais uses the, the camera to cue the satire, which has stopped, right? That's, I think, what made that show really special. And you don't see it in some of like um, Parks and Recreation. You don't see it in some of these other, in the, uh, mockumentary styles in the same way as you saw it in Spinal Tap. Because that cue is important because without the cue, a joke is just something, it's just a statement. And with the cue, it's performative, right? And that changes how you have to read it. So I think this is an important thing you pick up on as you analyze the joke. Okay. So, but before we get to the office joke, which is awesome, let's, let's roll back. And essentially what you say in the book overall is that you're going to use psychoanalytic concepts to look at ways that comedy can subversively challenge our universal notions. And you say, by seeking to establish a deliberate sense of uncomfortableness as fundamental to our relations with the other and ourselves. And then you say that obviously part of this is going to be this kind of hegemonic understanding of political correctness uh, as it kind of sometimes enables, but more often suppresses discomfort as a necessary part of like our collective belonging. So can you unpack some of that and then maybe roll into some of the psychoanalysis you think we'll need for the book? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I think, well, I mean, yeah, to sort of, sort of follow up with what you said there, I think a key, I think one of the reasons why I was drawn to psychoanalysis, and it's, I think it's something that's interesting in particular about authors such as Alenka Sapanjit, Slavoj Zizek, is that what they do is they take Lacan's ideas from psychoanalysis and they sort of um, they link them to sort of philosophical debates and philosophical contentions. So I think one of the things that sort of sits behind both Sapanjic and Zizek is their, their dialectical materialism. So what we mean by that is essentially what they're doing is looking for those inconsistencies in reality itself. And I think that's what made comedy as subversive quite unique in the sense that uh, comedy as a form of subversion might be something that's very good at identifying these sort of inconsistencies or the gaps and the contradictions in our sort of universal assumptions, but also in ideological notions as well. So it was sort of linking those two together that I thought, you know, in what ways can comedy be subversive and in what ways can I perhaps carry on the ideas um, that Subanj- uh, that Subanjit raises in, in her book on comedy as well. And she, what she does, she draws upon, uh, more specifically, she draws upon the work of, of um, Hegel. And in particular, she has this 
this wonderful example, this sort of thought experiment, which sort of, as I said, sort of once I heard this, this sort of example, it was really where the idea for the book sort of came from. Um, but she talked about the, 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 the Baron slipping on a banana peel. Um, so I'll just quickly read it because it makes a bit more sense once I've read it. Uh, so she says, a toffee-nosed Baron slips, slips on a banana peel, thus demonstrating that even he is subject to the laws of gravity. Yet the next instant, he is up again and walking around arrogantly, no less sure of the highness of his highness until the next accident that will again try to ground him and so on and so on. And I think what's quite interesting here is Sapanjik draws a whole theory of comedy from this example. What she says, is she makes these two distinctions. She says there's, there's true comedy and there's false comedy. Now, the false comedy is the very conservative attitude that the Baron slips on the banana peel, gets up and, and carries on. And in that moment of slippage, he's human like everybody else. So there's this idea that you could take somebody like a Baron and they could make themselves look a bit like a tit. And then, but, and then we're all, we, we carry on as normal. So they carry it, they're just like anybody else, because anybody can do that. And that would be the sort of the false comedy there. So it's, she often refers to that as a very conservative form. You see this in, you see this, well, I mean, you saw this a lot with George Bush, um, who deliberately made himself look a bit daft and a bit silly and, and as part of his image. What's this strange, you have that strange thing in America, what is it, the White House dinner? Where, is oh, it the, the, end white, of the, the White House correspondence dinner? Yeah, right. Uh-huh. They basically, yeah, and it's. I mean, what is? I mean, it's a, an opportunity. To, oh, I'm just. I'm just like you guys. I might be the president of America, but you know, I can make a joke and laugh at myself. You know, that's a really good argument. You should write an essay on that. I've never heard anyone argue that the White House Correspondence Dinner actually preserves a conservative sense of false comedy. That's genius. Well, I don't know if I made that. I, I'm. I'm probably doing what all good people. I'm. I'm stealing that. I think the example I draw upon. I think it's an example. It might be from Zabanja, but I think Todd McGowan in his book on comedy makes that link as well. This idea. Oh, that I haven't read McGowan's can, book. I need to. Right. I, well, that's another one. So I'm gonna, what I'm going to do in this, I'm just going to tell you to read other books. And <laughs> my own, um, which is the best place to start. Um, but yeah, I think he makes that. And I think, but it's a it's very conservative link. I mean, you could, I mean, Boris Johnson would be the, the perfect UK example of somebody uh-huh. does that, you know, that, you know, acts a bit daft and a bit silly and. I mean, it works, doesn't it? Because you end up getting elected president or prime minister. So, um, but yeah, but this idea that if you look at the Baron when he falls in on the banana peel and laugh because he's just like every other human being, there's something gone wrong there, and that's a false form of comedy. The true form, and I think this is where she, where uh, Zapanjik's argument is, is, is utterly fantastic, is this idea that true comedy occurs um, when the universal, in both its abstract and actual dimensions, is brought to brought together in a particular concrete example that provides a short circuit between the universal and the concrete. So I think essentially what she's arguing there is it's that you don't laugh at the Baron because he's human. You laugh at the presumptuous way that the Baron stands up and carries on acting like a Baron. So you're laughing at his barrenness, the title itself, this this symbolic identity. Uh, The fact that somebody could believe in their symbolic identity is where the comedy lies, not, not within the way it makes everybody the same and everybody human. You're laughing at this symbolic, ideological, uh, this universal notion of barrenness, which is made to look ridiculous in the moment of him slipping on the banana peel. So he looks like an idiot in that moment um, when he does so. And there's a wonderful, I, in the book I, I link this with, there's a fantastic example from the, uh, the British comedy series Only Fools and Horses, uh, Only Fools and Horses uh, where the character Dell uh, falls through a bar so he's with his friend in a bar and he's trying to chat up. Uh, there's a girl in the bar as well and he's trying to um, you know, attract her attention. And he's talking to his friend Trigger at the time and he's saying, look, this is how, basically he's saying this is how you go about attracting a woman. 
Um, this is what women want. And then little does he know, as he stands up saying this, someone goes through the countertop of the bar, lifts up the countertop. He then goes back to lean against the bar and he falls through the bar. <laughs> and it's called the Dell falls through a bar scene. So if you stick it in YouTube, um, you'll get it. And it's, it's probably one of the most, it probably get voted the funniest scene, I think, in British comedy. Um, and I think it's very similar to the slip and the banana peel there. It's not that Dell's just like everybody else. I think there's a subversive element in that and that what you can actually criticise is Dell's image of, of his masculinity. It's the fact that he knows as a man what women want and I think that's what you're meant to be laughing at there. That's the subversive element in it. Yeah, there's take a, fun of the symbolic identity. There's a really good piece yeah. of stand-up I watched recently that I didn't... So I've never found Kevin Hart very funny. Do you know who Kevin Hart is? Yes, yeah. I yeah, just... Well, I, yeah. Yeah, have never gone in. Not he's he's not bad. He's adorable. I just never really got into him. And then there was that, and this gets us to political correctness, um, which is that in 2011 he made some really homophobic tweets that got him uh, removed as the host of the Oscars, and a lot of people thought it was unfair. And and then I watched this skit called Gun Compartment, where he performs masculinity, and not only is he not is he performing it very like to break, right? The, so there's a universal sense of what a man does to protect his home, right? That's very entrenched. And then there's the specific, obvious impossibility that any person could ever live up to that universal. And he performs this contradiction so well in this joke. And part of what he does is he breaks. So you know how comedians are supposed to keep a straight face and not laugh at their own jokes. Um, he really strategically uses the break. And it's such an effective, I, I was really impressed because I just don't see very many people do this well. No, yeah. Well, it's it's dangerous because you've got to play. Right. Yeah. You've got to play the masculinity, That's haven't right. you? And I think this is this is what made me. You know, when I read this example of the Baron, you know, um, it's still a Baron. It's still obviously go back to the Sopranos example. There, it's it's still that which you're meant to be laughing at. And I thought, well, in the context of a racist joke, like how far could you go with a racist That's right. joke? That's right. Before it subverts itself, before in exactly the same way you're talking there about Kevin Hart, how far do you go with this masculine example where that sort of where it starts to it starts to untie itself, where in its own performance you see its inconsistency and the right. gaps within it, right. and that's where the moment of subversion. I mean, there's a whole there's a whole debate to be had here. I mean, I know there are authors, uh, particularly psychoanalytic uh, psychoanalytic authors, who would probably say that's more a path of perversion, mm. uh, and subversion is perversion. Right, so I right. think, and that's something that I probably could have discussed a bit more in the book. Um, but I think it's it's an interesting debate to have because I think comedy gives us a space where you you can subvert in that sense, if that makes sense, more so than perhaps, yeah, other aspects. Well, speaking of, of books that neither right. one of us wrote, um, I have an interview coming out shortly with Josh Gunn who talks about the difference between good perversion and mean perversion, so playful perversion and mean perversion. So this may be a, a solution because there are comics who point out, like Bill, Bra Bill Burr, I, th I think in the U.S., is oh, yeah, one of them. Bill, yeah, Bill Burr. Yeah, he, yeah, points yeah. Out, he points out contradictions all the time. I think he has this line in a stand-up where he says, he's basically saying, like, I don't want to hear any more white women bitch about how hard their life was unless your uncle banged you in the dirt. Yes. And yeah, so in a right. weird way, yeah. he's acknowledging intersectionality, which is a thing he usually makes fun of because he is saying like different kinds of oppression enable, like should authorize you to have more legitimacy to your complaints. But he doesn't do it in a way that upends the universal particular, right? It's too particular. Yes. So it doesn't yeah. subvert the relationship. It just reinforces it because it ignores the universal and goes straight to the specific. So even comedians yeah. that have done it don't do it well because they're mean yeah. perverts, as, as God no, would say. Uh, yeah, well, definitely. And I think I think something we can come on 
to talk about a bit later, perhaps in the joke itself. And I think it's the position. It's not just the content. It's the form. It's the yes. It's the, it's the position, yep. the subject uh, of enunciation, yep. but it's also so the position of what something's being said and it's and it's how it's being said as well, um, which is really um, yeah, which is interesting. I think and I think that's where it goes good and where it goes bad, perhaps when it gets lost. So I think in that sense, you know, if you're just you know the example you just gave there, it's it, you you. I mean, this is the problem I have with like um, I don't find them funny. And I remember being at university and everybody like saying how funny John Oliver and. Oh, John that, Oliver, yeah. Yeah, that, yeah. And, all, and who was the one who used to do the dates at the Daily Show? Uh, John Stewart. Uh, yeah, John Stewart. That was, yeah, that was the one. Um, but I don't know, because you just, they end up being talking from the universal position, That's can't right. they? Where they can, they can laugh at white working class, they can laugh at black working class, they can they can laugh at the rich and everything. And I think, you know, that's that's something that I want hope the book would criticise, because mm-hmm. I, I think that's, that's bad perversion, because then you're just... Yeah, you're getting off on the joke, you know, having that position of the the almighty, being able to comment on everybody else, which is, yeah. That's which great. Is odd. So how does this get yeah. us to political correctness then? Because in theory, you could have made the whole argument of the book. It would have been a different book, but you could have just dumped the political correctness angle and really just looked at how does comedy subvert or not subvert the universal particular, right? That could have been the question. And instead, you really want to look at this through a lens of, the move toward political correctness, which enriches the book and nuances it. So why go there? What's the argument there? What do you think it adds to the book? Yeah, uh, I mean, uh, this is this is probably m- m- the influence from reading um, probably far too much uh, uh, Slavoj Žižek. Um, but this is interesting because I think, um, obviously, Žižek's very critical of, of liberal multiculturalism. And as I said, I think when I, as soon as I read that barren example from Supanjic, it was straight away I was thinking of, of the example of David Brent from the joke that we'll consider in a bit. And I knew then that that was clearly, you know, David Brent was a character who 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 thought he was performing political correctness. And I right. think that that's, that's what gave that character a, a, polit- uh, a particular angle. You know, he thought he was the, call it whatever, the liberal postmodern boss um, who was friends with everybody. You know, don't call me boss, call me da- you know, David type of thing. And, um, and I think that's the way I sort of then started to think about the way in which liberal multiculturalism and in particular, political correctness had taken on this this position of of of, a, of universality, this sort of false universal position. It was a particular that was proclaiming itself as the universal position because what it so often did is that it allowed the liberal individual to to you know you know donate his money to the refugee crisis, make sure that the food banks stocked up and whatnot, but all the while never actually changing his own position, so he could right. maintain that universal position. And this was at the time was, I mean, I wrote the book in um, in summer 2019, and this was on the back of like a refugee crisis, obviously, with, in Europe, where we had like people like Bob Geldof, um, mm. you know, saying that he, a refugee can come live in my house. We've got a football, we've got an ex-footballer who's now a pundit, who's sort of like a television presenter, um, Gary Lineker, who invites a refugee to come and live with him. And it's that, you know, it's that they can't, well, you can do that, Gary, probably because you live in a house with like 30 rooms. You know what I mean? It's like, right. It's like, <laughs> the, hotel, it's like yeah. the neoconservative politicians who have like nine foster kids, but then won't yeah. stand up for basic human yeah. rights for foster kids. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's the no, same exactly. thing. Yeah. 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 Um, so that was, I think that was one way of, of, of drawing all this together. And I said, I, you know, I always had the office at the back of my mind, um, I think I think that was one thing that got me thinking along the lines there of political correctness and, and liberal multiculturalism, and it was a way. I think, in particular, some of the a lot of the examples I, I draw I draw upon in the book from from television and whatnot were all in some way linked to political correctness. They were all taking the mick out of political correctness or 
or highlighting how political correctness could uh, perhaps be used in that false perverted sense of which you mentioned earlier. Um, mm. And I think, I mean, you mentioned it before. I mean, uh, there's the example from Dead to Me, I think, which which highlights, I think, some of the inconsistencies in that. Yeah, and, and this is position. and this is an argument you make in the book. I, do you do you want to mm. read the dead to me um, joke, or do you want me to? Because I did write it down. Oh well, no! Yeah, you're the comedian. You say it. no. I'm not. I'm not very good though. Yeah. If I were, I'd be doing comedy shows, not book interviews. <laughs> yeah. But maybe I do both. Who knows? Um, so you do say that that the real kind of like the one of the sentences I zoomed in on in this book is that the real. I don't know if it's what you want to say, like the best comedy does um, is when comedy is kind of working in support of subversion. I guess that's the way to say it. When it's being subversive is that it exaggerates the inherent contradictions in political correctness. So I thought that was a great takeaway is like, okay, this is how we do or between true and false, like mean spirited and playful perversion, however you want to use your theory At at the base. It's about, there's an inherent contradiction in this thing that we all kind of revere or tiptoe around or talk about as if it's just one monolithic thing like political correctness, but there are inherent contradictions and the comedian's job is to point out those contradictions, right? Yes. Yeah. So it's like the comedy that you can share with your best friend. So your best friend knows all about you Yeah. and they can say the things that nobody else can say. Right. And it's funny if you know yeah. what I mean, perhaps an ex-boyfriend, girlfriend or something or other. And, yeah. and it's that or it's like, the pe- you know, something your mum or your dad might say to you. And that's that's. Yeah. So it's that having that relationship with somebody where they can say the worst things possible, but it's funny. Well, and this is Not, a really good yeah. point, because when comedians say shitty stuff uh, and I think yeah. Ricky Gervais is a really good example. He has um, a stand up and the very opening bit is a very long joke about Caitlyn Jenner, who is a trans yeah. woman. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. The joke does not point out, it starts out by pointing out an inherent contradiction in the way that that sort of we all say like, oh, we have to be totally politically correct around trans identity. He really early gets at the inherent contradiction, which I thought was great. I wish he just stopped there because then the remaining 10 minutes of the joke, it's just repeated transphobia and dead naming Caitlyn Jenner with zero benefit. And so you see very swiftly the switch from, look, I'm a comedian who points out a contradiction y'all haven't seen in this thing you think is so important to you, but you're not critically analyzing it. Two, now I'm just going to be a mean pervert and just mock trans people, right? So yeah. you can really and see the difference. He does that from the point of science a lot, doesn't he? I've noticed that. Yes. He'll, he'll always yes. like resort to yeah, science. To science yeah. Like, yeah, and then take the mick out of religion as if, well, you know, it's not difficult, is it? Take yeah. the mick out of religion, Ricky. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? I think, yeah. So Even, people- you know, the best religious people do that. But yeah, go on. Yeah, yeah. No, so, if, so for people listening, I think this is a really good takeaway. It's that when you're trying to validate a comedian, you validate them for the ability to point out these contradictions that you didn't. You say something really interesting in the book about, actually, I think you're quoting someone about how comedy is meant to have you stumble over the joke and then realize you stumbled over it. Are you quoting Chow maybe on that? Uh, There was, yeah, where was that? Something like that. Um, Yeah. yeah. And that's precisely right. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that was I th- well. I think that's an uh, yeah, that was from a book on Zizek and performance, and that's quite interesting because I think Chow might actually be a stand-up comedian. Oh um, wow! Okay, I'll uh, read that. Yeah, who was applying Zizek's ideas? So it was, yeah. I, th- I relied. I think it was. Um, it's an edited collection, and then I think Chow has a, a chapter in, in in the collection. Yeah, I think it's titled Zizek and performance. But that's yeah, and as you said, he, he highlights a lot of these things about yeah, particularly when doing stand-up comedy that. You're talking to a void, aren't you? You're talking to an empty, well, a black, you know, a room where you can just see nothing, perhaps, when you're on the stage with, with the lights talking mm. and whatnot. So you're, every every joke is a um, a step into the unknown, I suppose. Yeah, well, and you basically make the argument that 
that that true, we'll call it true discomfort. I mean, true false is like, a, but it's hard to find better language than that sometimes. That the discomfort that's produced, not because someone said something that legit made you uncomfortable, like an actual racist joke. No, yeah. Or, or a Holocaust joke, which make me very uncomfortable, right? That's not the kind of discomfort we're aiming for. And often that discomfort gets held up as like all discomfort is good. And it's like, no, you're saying that's just cheap discomfort that only some people are uncomfortable. That's the issue. The thing we want is like to basically poke holes in your entire understanding of how reality works. And that's the discomfort that sort of we need to fundamentally use to create collective identity. And it's and it can be suppressed by political correctness because it allows for no kinds of discomfort because some are damaging and some are productive, but it's too hard to nuance that. So it's just off the board entirely. Yeah, yeah. And I think, yeah, and political correctness is wonderful for that. I mean, that was one of the reasons why I was trying to draw this link between um, sort of the ideological significance of political correctness, because it works both ways. You can be both for political correctness and against it. Yes, um, right. In the sense that, yeah, in the sense that you can be anti-PC um, uh, and attack and therefore be attacking political correctness. But at the same time, you can then be very politically correct and attack the anti-PCers, if that makes the people yeah. who are anti it. So it's like, it's just this no-win game, really, which to me meant that there must have been something ideological about it that made it. Do you watch cool. Cameron Esposito stand up at all? No. no She's really good at this. Right, she, yeah. She is an excellent, I call her a PC comic with every right, yeah. like benefit of that word. I mean... She's the most politically correct, funny person I've ever seen. And it's cool to watch her because she quite explicitly says, I don't need to violate political correctness to be funny. Watch watch how I'm not going to do that now. So it's, she's really good to watch for something like that. All right. You want to do the analysis of the dead to me and then we'll jump over to the office? Yes. Yeah, cool. So, I mean, just, yeah. So what we were talking about there with regards to actual, you know, this position that those who are politically correct can sort of hold, um, uh, and this, this sort of universal position, I think this was one way we were linking it there um, with the universal. Right. Um, so this is this, this is taken. This is from the Netflix um, series uh, "Dead to Me." Um, so what I'll do is I'll just I'll read out the extract and then I'll read out the script great. as yeah. well, and that's that's included in the book. So uh, an example of this can be found in the dark comedy "Dead to Me." Here, the character Jen, played by Christina Applegate, whose husband has recently been killed in a hit and run, attends a retreat for bereaved spouses. At a karaoke event organised by the retreat, Jen nervously approaches Jason, Steve Howie, with the intended desire to fuck him. Before approaching Jason, Jen exclaims to her friend, I'm going to try and fuck that guy. Clearly nervous and hoping to apologise for a previous offence that she made earlier in the day, Jen remarks that the offence was in fact a lame attempt to try and flirt with Jason. Upon hearing this, Jason remarks that he is flattered that Jen would like to flirt with him, before stating, you're beautiful. Happily shocked by the remark, Jen takes a breath and awkwardly whispers, do you want to fuck? The following ensues. Jason, what did you say? Jen, um, do you? Jen again mouths the following, which is barely audible, want to fuck. Jason, I'm sorry, I can't hear you. Jen, clearly embarrassed. I'm sorry, um, would you like to dance? Jason, smiling, oh sure, yeah, because for a second I thought that you were asking me if I wanted to fuck. So this short scene effectively demonstrates the underlying impasses and awkward encounters that inevitably, inevitably proceed when one takes a more open approach to, in this instance, heterosexual seduction. Notably, as is clear in the above example, such forms of open expression, which may in fact reveal the positive assertion of female empowerment, can just as easily work to maintain latent forms of patriarchal power and enjoyment. 
In the scene, Jen feels guilty, as evident in the whispered assertions, about asking Jason to sleep with her. And while Jason knew all along and clearly enjoyed the fact that Jen wanted to fuck him, he just needed to hear her embarrassingly redeclare it. So I thought, I think, I think to me that joke just gets at the heart of the problems with political correctness mm-hmm. you've got, mm-hmm. and also, you know, the whole process of seduction. I mean, it's an example that Zizek, you know, comes back to all the time. He says, well, how can you manage or um, mitigate the process of, you know, uh, of seduction when it can only work retroactively? You know, what right. I mean, if, if you make a pass at somebody and that person's offended by the pass, well, you've offended them, but. If they're not offended, then you, the past was never offensive, was it? In the because retroactively it changes um, the implication behind it. Right. So I think what was quite funny about that, and um, yeah, I probably read that horrifically. Go watch Dead to Me would be probably <laughs> the best suggestion. <laughs> well, Christina Applegate is hysterical, so I mean, well, yeah, that's a high bar. It, it's a high bar. Yeah. So, so yeah, and she does it brilliantly as well in the way sort of she has the embarrassment of, of, of offending him and whatnot. But what I thought was quite, and what I thought was quite interesting there was how the joke itself actually was centered around the man in that instance, Jason you know, deliberately performing, getting her to say, I, I do want to fuck and right. keep and keep repeating it, which I right. thought was quite interesting because that was the crux of the matter. And she was embarrassed to ask it. She was nervous perhaps uh, to just come out and say that when clearly that's what, that's what was hanging in, hanging in the air, so to speak. So to um, use your so, language, yeah. what's the subversion of the universal and the particular there? Can you lay that out okay. for the listeners? Okay, so what I would probably say in that instance is um, what what gets what gets um, so to draw upon the terms of Andrew uses the concrete universal, and I think what the reason why I quite like that is because the universal becomes concretized; it becomes right. made brought to bear in a particular moment. Right. Is that you get if you think there that uh, Jen is trying to be I don't know um, political correctness might not be the right term, kind of like she's, demure sort of yeah, yeah demure yeah. like she's sort of yeah rather than you know. Uh, you know, rather than just going up, you know, rather than going up to somebody saying, do you want to fuck? Like and Margaret then like, Cho, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So like, you know, good God, what's wrong with you type thing. Um, yeah, she has to sort of whisper it and whatnot. So what you do is you get this whole abstract demure, no, this notion of demureness, this idea of yeah, um, right. the way in which she should be, Lady I don't know. Ladylike behavior. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, ladylike behavior. In this one moment, it gets displayed for all the problems that are inherent to it. Right. So it's the universal suddenly now becomes alive in that minute in the same way that the baron's title mm. suddenly you know falls to the ground there's a wonderful quote i can't remember if i got it here, but there's a brilliant quote by marcus pound who talks about um uh in talking about Supanjic again to bring it back to the baron example he says that like good comedy no bad comedy sorry you know uh heavens come crashing down but at the end of the day they, they all still they're all still there right. by the end of the comedy because you can go back to normal like so it's like a bit like the carnivalesque and whatnot we can all be mad and funny for a couple of mm-hmm. minutes, but then everything goes back to normal. There's right. um, an example which Simon Critchley draws upon about how <laughs> it always makes you wonder how these examples come about. But yeah. apparently, like when he was writing his book on comedy, he was at a hotel, and the hotel uh, had like a company come in and do like you know like an away day type session. We call them away days, isn't it? Okay. Uh, they you know where they all get together like a bonding session yeah, for yeah, the workplace. Yeah. And they were having to do some, you know, banal activity where you have to make something usually then you have matchsticks or, 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 or straws or something. And he was saying about how they were sub- they were messing about in the activity, which is one way they tried to subvert it and create a sense of distance. Right. But but I argue that doesn't really work, right. does it? Because it just no. maintains yeah. the power structure. You get right. your five minutes of messing about, right. um, you know, you know, criticizing the bosses, saying how ridiculous the day is, but 
then when the activity's over, you still have to go back and do the activity. Right. So I think I think that's again why I think this Sapanjic example is fantastic because it shows you it, it plays out the inconsistency of the big universal ideological notion. Um, and I think in this example, it was a quite a nice one of highlighting how patriarchal power could still you know became, you know could still exist as well in the sense that Jason was deliberately teasing her to to get that statement out which I thought was interesting. Yeah, I mean I always say to cuz I teach a stand up comedy class and we fight about this all the time cuz I'll show them what I consider to be really transgressive comics and they're like no they're not funny. And I'm like no they're only not funny because you've been trained to find things that are shitty funny. Yes. Because yeah. you identify a certain kind of discomfort as funny and another kind of discomfort is not funny. But those are subjective and not they're just you're, that's just how you've been trained to respond to the text, but, but the text itself is doing something different than you're giving it credit for. Yeah, right? and, I, and I, that's the performance. Yeah, that's right. the, and I think yeah, the formal, the formal elements of that as well. I think yeah, the, and I think, again, there's this relation, this nice relationship between content and form in what we're saying, in the sense that it's the it's the it's the formal structure of the Baron. Um, slipping on the banana peel that brings to get brings down to earth the contents shows the ridiculousness of the baroness the title so it's the way in which the formal structure of a joke can highlight the problem with the content or the inconsistencies with the content oh well. i love when people That's talk nice formed. Thing. talk yeah, more form so to me i love it right we will we will do when we <laughs> so talk about the office right. <laughs> well yeah let's cut to the office i think yeah otherwise i'm going to keep alluding to it yeah, yeah let's do it um Okay, cool. So, so the so chapter five focuses on on the office. The series. I have a bit talking about the series and its significant and its significance. There's some wonderful stuff. Um, interestingly, Paul Gilroy wrote a bit about the office mm. uh, and, and quite favorably actually on David Brent and his reference to the particular joke that I discussed. As well. Will you remind them who David Brent is? Uh, so, so David Brent is played by Ricky Gervais. He is the office manager mm. uh, of, of the office, and he is. Um, he is the stereotypical postmodern boss. He's um, uh, it's, it's hard to so we've got it's it's this noughties period. So it's Tony Blair's New Labour Britain neoliberal workplaces nine to five going and do the office head into the pub at five o'clock. It's it's awful because it's actually like the precursor to all the worst things that we currently have. So it's like majority of people in that office probably had degrees. You know what I mean? Right, but they're not right, necessarily right. doing anything with those degrees. Yeah. They've had to go to a normal you know nine to five job. So. Yeah, it really is that sort of, I suppose, that weird period at the start of the new new millennium. You know, you know what I mean? It's this weird sort of, I don't know, middle ground period where I think everything, all the problems we now currently have were sort of being born in that instance, perhaps. Um, so, yeah, so I think he's, he's an interesting character. As I said, he, he draws together all the all the all the problems, I think, that you could tie to neoliberal UK new labor at that time. Yeah, he, um, so really. he is. In Amer- if you watch the American Office, he's Steve Carell's character. Okay, so, yes. all right, good. Yeah, so I think that's the connection. And I think, yeah, and I, and I suppose I suppose just to keep a, an eye on America there, I think it's very similar. I think the US series and literally copies the first two seasons. It does, it's really close. Yeah, which is quite interesting, because a lot of people I spoke to said they actually think it gets better after that. Uh, um, debatable. Right, okay, that's interesting. Uh, anyway, so, yeah, so I think there might be something similar to this episode. So uh, this is the... So I, I talk a bit about The Office, uh, have a little bit there on David Brent, and then I focus on, um, as you said, a bit of a case study. Um, I explore one episode, which is the first episode of the second season titled Merger. And in particular, I look at four scenes from the episode, um, which sort of all coalesce around the telling of this of this black man's cock joke. Um, so should, should I talk a little bit about the scenes and the, the first scene and... And what yeah, not. whatever you think will help help them yeah, okay, see the, cool. see the so, book arguments laid out. Yeah. 
Fantastic. So, so the, as I said, chapter five has got these four sections. So the first, the first scene is that um, it's, it's a short scene that involves uh, Gareth, um, David Brent, and and Tim, um, uh, played by Martin Freeman, and uh, and it's the first episode, sorry, of the second season where a new that there's two there's two offices merging. So you've got the Slough branch and you've got the Swindon branch. And they're both merging, and um, those that previously worked for Swindon are now coming to Slough. So David's got to do this welcome event. He's got to do like a bit of a welcome um, uh, meeting, mm-hmm. and he's a you know he's always looking at the camera. And I'm not sure if it's similar in the US one, but he, it's clear that although he works in an office, he would much rather be you know a television personality, so to speak, in in the sort of reality. It's TV similar. Mode. I do think Gervais cues it better, but he invented it in some ways. So it's like. <laughs> Yeah, well, so if there's ever an opportunity to perform for the cameras, David takes it type yeah. thing. So obviously he's going to have this welcome meeting with the Swindon branch, uh, and he talks about he's going to do some jokes. And Gareth says to him, "Well, what jokes? You know, I've got a joke you can use." Um, and and so David says, "Okay, tell us the joke." And the joke is essentially a game of. Oh, and real um, quick, Gareth is the British Dwight. So yes, if you've watched yeah. the U.S. Office, I'm just yeah, I'm just trying to keep track of characters. Okay, keep going. Yeah, yeah. It was played by Mackenzie, someone called Mackenzie. I can't. Remember. Yeah, it's in the book. Um, and what, I mean, I mean, I thought about this actually this morning before before I started speaking about this, but the joke involves the British family playing the game Twenty Questions, where they each uh, somebody thinks of something, and then you've got to get to it um, within twenty questions. And uh, I think I think Camilla Parker Bowles starts. And she and what she's thinking of is a black man's cock. And they go through all the questions. So is it bigger than the bread bin? Uh, is it bigger? Can I put it in my mouth? And then the joke of the joke is that the queen comes out and says, is it a black man's cock? So she gets there within like three questions. Um, I mean, my God, I mean, to contextualize that in, in recent debates surrounding the royal family and Meghan Markle. And Actually, I have thoughts on this, but tell the joke first. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so that's the, that's basically the joke that the queen the queen gets to it within three questions, um, and obviously, and I say this quite clearly in the book, it's a racist joke. It's you know, it's working off the stereotype: all, all black men have large genitalia. But the joke is that the the royal family got to it. So the, the queen the queen got to it um, within three questions. So Gareth then so Gareth tells that to David Brent. They both hysterically laugh, and you've got Tim who sits there quite brilliantly. Um, I think Tim is the who's the who's the fellow who wrote. Um, he's a big actor now. Uh, he's married to the British woman, I think. Um, the American Tim. That. Yeah. The American Tim, I think, is Jim, who is Jim, um, yeah. uh, shoot uh, uh, John Krasinski. That's the one. Yeah, he wrote that film, didn't he? With his that's one. I was, you know, the, where the people get you, where yeah. the monsters get you. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah good. Yeah, completely off topic. Who's uh, sitting there for you? So it's complete. <laughs> It's in, so it's funny. It's funny because I mean, you, you laugh. You laugh for. I think you're, the camera focuses a lot on Tim's bemoos. Tim doesn't laugh. He looks right. straight at the camera with that yeah. expression where you're like, oh, you know. And as soon as you hear it, you're like, oh god, um, okay. And it, it's clear that you've heard. A that's horribly, Martin, Tim you know, is Martin Freeman, right? Who is also pretty big in America. Yes. Yeah, he's right, great. Yeah, he's he is great now. Yeah, so, yeah, um, yeah. Frodo. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, so, <laughs> Um, so that's uh, yeah. So that's the first scene. So then, in this, and I don't analyze this, but later in the episode, uh, David Brent does the does does his little stand up routine to um, to the new Swindon, and it just it fails ha- awfully. In fact, he actually, he, I think he tries to tell a disabled joke, and it completely utterly backfires. He tries to make a joke about somebody who's disabled in the company, and that completely goes goes wrong. So then, in the second scene, it's like after the welcome meeting, and they're having like a few, you know, they're having a drink. 
um, in the office. And Dave and, Dave, and David Brent stood there and he says, oh, this is the joke I should have told you. And he then recites the, the royal family joke. So clearly he didn't, he knew it was racist from the first scene because he didn't then right, repeat he it later it. on. Yep. Yeah, but then because he didn't get any laughs, he's then got a group of, um, group of people and he says, this is what I should have told you. And he right. retells the joke. Royal family at Christmas playing 20 and questions. And all the people are white, right, in that scene? Yes. Yeah. Yes. All the people are, uh, are white. I think. I think you got one member who's in a wheelchair. So I think. So I think there's one woman who's in the wheelchair. So it's it's a very sort of lad, we call it like lad, you know, very masculine uh, male male um, uh, domain, so to speak. So it's yeah. And he starts retelling the joke, and then just before he gets to the punchline, before the queen says, "Is it a black man's cock?" Oliver, the black colleague, steps into the group, right. and 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 it's again. Just go on YouTube. Type in. Uh, you know. Um, I don't know, type in David Brent, black man's cock joke. And you'll, you'll see the scene because it's, it's acted phenomenally. And I tried to, I, re, I was able to get permission to reuse the scripts in the book because the script hopefully will, is where you can get some laughs as well. Cause it's Oliver steps in and David immediately is like, Oh yeah. And just doesn't finish the punchline at all. I.e., mm-hmm. the queen, the, when she says, it, is it, um, is it, the, is it a black man's cock? So obviously Oliver walks in and it's clear that his presence has altered the telling of the joke. And somebody in the group says, well, all right then, David, what was the joke? What was the punchline? And he goes, oh, that was it. And it's clear that he's awkward. He doesn't want to tell the joke. And uh, someone, and Oliver says, you know, what was the joke? And someone says, oh, it's rural family. And then Oliver says, oh, the black colleague says, oh, it's not the one about uh, the black man's cock, is it? And so he says the punchline. He, he's the one who delivers the punchline to the joke saying, oh, is it the one where is it, it's not a black man's cock? And then what's interesting is that David looks at him and goes, yeah, bad, ain't it? And Oliver turns around and goes, no, no, it's funny. Yeah, it's, it, you know, it's laughed. So it's this whole awkwardness that gets played out that I think was what the office did brilliantly. But what's quite unique here is I think, and it's something we can talk about in a bit, is, is the sense in which the, the joke's formal structure is changed in, in these two scenes. Right. Which is, I think, I think where most of our discussion can lie. The third scene, uh, Brent and Gareth are brought into the office, brought into the manager's office where they're reprimanded by the bosses. And you get the joke retold this time a third time um, in the scene as well as they say it to the bosses. And then there's a final fourth scene where, uh, where David says to the group, you know, who complained? type thing and I think this plays on it plays upon because Dave David's whole thing about it in the third and fourth scene is that it can't be racist because Oliver found it funny the black yeah, man found right. it funny which, which is and where think, it then returns to his yeah right. yeah mm-hmm. yeah which then which then again you know that's when you see like the real ridiculousness of, 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 of because David thinks he's being politically correct by telling a racist joke that a black man is finds right. funny yeah, type yeah. thing is that yeah. idea I think that would be that sort of false perversion or whatnot um, so yeah, so it's the first two scenes that I think are, are particularly funny and and, and particularly uh, particularly interesting. I think they're interesting partly because you see this you see this relationship between um, the joke and the comedy sequence getting played out in these right. two scenes. Um, so one of the things Elenka Shapanjik talks about is that jokes have this um, joke and comedy sequences have a have a temporality. So when you tell a joke, it's a you know you you, you create a story so to speak, and then you have the punchline. And then the punchline retroactively changes everything that came before type thing. So it sort of redefines the story that was previously being told. And you laugh at the, pu- you laugh at the, the butt, so to speak, the, the, yeah, yeah. the punchline. Um, a comic sequence is different because a comic sequence, what that does is it presents a different te- uh, temporal perform in that what, often what you'll get is you'll get the same or you'll get the same sequence performed but it's but it's a it's a strange sort of it's a continuity a continuity in discontinuity. 
Mm. So a comic sequence is would be, I mean, the ultimate example of a comic sequence would be mistaken identities, mm-hmm. uh, where in the first instance, uh, I mean, you often the audience know that the identity has been mistaken, but what then you see get played out over the course of the comic sequence is the way in which those mistaken identities create, you know, get worse, get worse, get worse. And the comic, you know, it's the comedy is built up over over the fact that it's it's um, it's the sequence is being played out, so to speak. Do you um, listen so com- to Daniel Sloss at all? Say that again, sorry. Daniel Sloss, the British comedian. Daniel, no, I've not heard of him. Who's he's no. Scottish. Right. Um, he does this. His stand-ups are right. really long, and they re- they revisit the same joke four or five times by the end. It's a similar oh, so kind this of- is okay. So that sounds like Stuart. Have you heard of Stuart Lee? Yeah, Stuart Lee, similar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so th- I mean, they're masters at like yeah, yeah. the sort of the way right. in which yeah. I mean, even he'll even tell you what you're going to find funny yeah, in the right. first <laughs> sentence of the joke, yep. and then proceeds to show you why you're finding it funny all the while you're laughing. I love at it. that. I, you know, it appeals yeah. to the comedy well, nerd in me. I really like comics that explain why things are funny. Like Gervais does yeah. it, but he often will misexplain his own joke to make something offensive yeah. funny, which I find very interesting because I think he's smarter than that, but maybe he's not. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. He punches down, I suppose. I suppose He's a punch downer for punch. sure. And, and it's yeah. gotten, and I yeah. think this is true of like, as people age, especially I think like privileged people, like white men, yeah. they get older and suddenly yeah. like the norms change. So things that were funny in the eighties aren't funny now. And instead of just realizing why that might be and writing new jokes, they just continue to defend jokes from 30 years ago. Right. That, no, that, of course. Yeah. 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 So he ends right. up hosting the Globes with a pint of beer there because he's everyday working with, man. Yeah, with jokes it, he's been yeah. telling for 20 yeah. years that don't work anymore. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So no, tell me exactly. more. Sorry, I digress. Uh, yeah, no, that's fine. And so, well, I mean, Stuart Lee's perfect. Again, yeah, highlighting that comic sequence in the way. And I could have written a whole book on Stuart Lee. The worst thing was, uh, I think someone, uh, Berlan and the guy, I probably said those names awfully, they're cited in the book. They did a fantastic chapter, uh, uh, paper where they explored Stuart Lee, um, which was really good. So I left that one there. Um, so, yeah, so I think what's really interesting here is is what you get in these first two scenes is you get the merging of both a joke and a comedy sequence. So you get the, the telling of a norm. So it's like a joke within a joke within a weird way. It's well, you're getting told mm. a joke within that first scene, which is a joke. And, you know, you could have had that first scene and all it, to me, that would have been a perfect example of racism. So all you would have been told was a racist joke with nothing right. to follow up, nothing to come of it. Three white men being told a racist joke, two men finding it hilarious. But then what's quite interesting um, is that the way in which the, the following scenes then continue with the joke. And I think it's right. then that it starts to take on a level of, of, of subversion. And I think this is really something which is brought to bear, as I said, there in, in the presence of, of Oliver. So whereas we I think one of the things that, you know, the four and in particular this episode does really well is it, it, it shows the connection between jokes and a comic sequence. But mm. what it also shows is how the position of telling the joke can change as well. And this is what I referred to earlier between the uh, the subject of enunciation. So that's the position from which a joke is told. And then the subject of enunciated, which is the content of a joke as well. So mm-hmm. I think this is quite interesting because um, uh, I think, I think what you get, particularly in the second scene is the fact that you get, you get this switch in it. So I think what's quite nice is that the actual content of the joke appears formally as a presence in the second mm. scene. So you get Oliver, the black right. man, and his right. black cock suddenly appear. So it's no longer just a joke anymore. He's there within the reality of this comic sequence, which is itself, you know, which is itself a joke as well, because you meant you, you instantly laugh or you'll instantly go, oh, you know, the second Oliver enters the scene type of thing, because you know what's coming. You know, right. you, you've right. already, this is what I mean about the, the discontinuity. 
in the comic sequence. You, you've already heard the joke, you know what's going to be said, but there's this added addition that sort of gets that gets included. But I think what's quite nice is it's already included because you've already it's already included in the first scene in the content of the joke, if that makes sense. So right. I think what's interesting here is these two scenes are playing with this this relationship between content and form. Um, and you get you get Oliver occupy this sort of this 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 position of enunciation, and he's the one that gets to finish the punchline, which is really which is really interesting. Um, so I think you know with Oliver finishing the race and, uh, the racist joke, it's clear that he occupies the place of enunciation and the subject of the enunciated. Right. So I think he he's he's in both relationships here to to both the content of the joke, but then also the position of the joke teller. So you get this, you get this subversion. I think the easiest way to sort of conceptualise this um, in our discussion would be David's authority gets subverted in that instance. You know, right. he's no longer the the position of authority, i.e., the joke teller. He sort of gives up on that role, and it's taken over by the joke's punchline, literally mm. by the black man, if, if if that makes sense. So I think um, I think what's interesting here is is one thing I say: it's not just that Oliver resides within the joke's content; he is a black man but that rather than being excluded from the joke's performance, it is through Oliver's recounting of the punchline that a shift, i.e. An, an exposition of the inherent gap, is achieved. So I think that's the way in which it brings home the inconsistency, the gap in, in the sort of the politically correct demeanour, so to speak, of David Brent gets concretized. You know, David. the reason why David's not, um, uh, he's not saying the joke is because he knows it's wrong. He knows it's racist. He's right, trying to maintain right. that politically correct image. But it's only in through the case of Oliver, that we get to see that subverted. Um, so in a paradoxical way, I say Oliver's place of enunciation reveals the gap within the enunciated content with his mm. own intentions and the joke's political incorrectness being called into question. Right, right, right. Um, so I, you know, I always, you know, I think I explain this in the book as well, where I say, like, there's two ways that could go. You know, you either, Oliver enters and the joke gets told by David, which would just be awkward because sure. you'd hear it would be it would be a group of white, people telling a racist joke in front of a black man mm -hmm. you either or the worst one you either don't say it you either stop completely so imagine if, if if david just went like no no there was no joke you know if anyone tried to say anything shut up don't say anything i mean that's like entering a room with people talking about you and it's the most awkward thing in the world i mean that would be even worse right. to me i think that would be like even more violent against oliver the right. fact that his presence clearly yeah yeah completely yeah to stop the joke being told so again, what I like about this scene and what I, the way in which I think it brings to bear the, the false universality of political correctness and the ridiculousness of political correctness is that it performs the joke. But in this play, in this instance, Oliver becomes the joke teller, so to speak. Um, and then that's just something, the failure of David to realise that is then, is then something that gets played out in scenes three and four. So you get the continuation of this right. failure. Right, if it had stopped the, there, it might have just been another case of like white privilege being authorised by, you know, coerced black consent. And now it's, no, well, let's keep going on this because it needs to be clear that that Oliver becoming both positions doesn't then like turn back into just things we've seen before. Right. We have to keep pushing the boundary of the joke. Yeah. No, yeah. So, so, and I think that's, so it, it, and in the end, I think it even goes beyond um, uh, the racism of the joke. So I think in the third scene, um, you know, Gareth sits there, who's the Dwight character. And he's like, you know, Jennifer, they are, you know, black men do have big penises. I can show you, I've got magazines. And she's like, really, do you, you know, do you, <laughs> honest to God, do you have magazines? Like he, he can't even see the ridiculousness of how he's digging yeah. himself into a, a into a deeper hole. Uh, you get then, um, 
uh, as they're leaving, uh, David uh, then makes a, a, a homophobic faux pas as well in his discussion with the manager. So then that includes other things. It's almost like he can't stop himself after that. So all you get is this continuation mm-hmm. of the ridiculousness of political correctness being played out through its own inconsistencies and, you know, you know, its own inherent comedy, I suppose, would be would be the clear line there. But yeah, I think I think Oliver yeah, I think Oliver's attempts to hear the joke's punchline, I think it deliberately draws upon the 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 embarrassing idiosyncrasy, uh, the sort of embarrassment uh, of the idiosyncrasy of the of the joke. So it's that obscene adjoinment that you know in the racist joke which gets played out. Um, well, so by the fact. And I think too one thing. I think one of the reasons that this joke works in this scene. I was thinking about it is that it's not only a joke on race. It's also a joke on like propriety. Which of course, if there's one right, that's kind of what British comedy is ex- exceptionally good at. If you think about Monty Python, it's mm. poking fun at class norms. It's kind of one of the differences yeah. between the U.S. and. Like, since we don't have a royal class, we still have class issues. Comedy about propriety doesn't quite work because we're a low propriety culture anyway. But the fact that the queen gets the joke so quickly is actually the joke fundamentally is a joke about upending assumptions about the royal family. Yes. But but it uses racial stereotypes to make the class joke. And so it's really complicated in terms of the fact that it it is a racist joke, but it's not only a racist joke because most jokes have multiple layers and they use one to play against the other. Yes. Yeah. So in this case, the more times you hear the joke, the more different ways you can see it poking at social structures, not just race, but then it becomes class, then it becomes femininity, right? Yeah, yeah, and I think it's and it's almost it's it's almost like um, and I suppose this is one this is one thing. This is something that Todd McGowan talks a lot about in relation to comedy about the relationship between lack and excess. It's that sort of excessive enjoyment that always seems to bubble right, out. So right. you know, after after Oliver said no, the joke's funny and let David off the hook, so to speak. Uh, he then turns. Um, he then looks at the group of people in front of him and says, "Oh, have you met this little lady?" And she's a little lady because she's in a wheelchair. Right. So it's like he, he can't help it, and that's what he then plays out in the third scene and in the fourth scene as well. The fourth scene's a good one. He sort of that's where he stands up and says, "You know, who complained about the joke?" It turns out it's a white woman, and he's like, "Well, Oliver didn't find it funny, did you, Oliver?" Like, you know what I mean? And it's right. it, it all it all comes to a head, and he he talks about melting pots. So it's even like he even talks about the sort of the sort of very rather false multicultural language of of, of uh, new labor multiculturalism in that sense the melting pot bringing everybody together mm-hmm. he talks about wanting half and half and it's just as i said he just digs himself this this deeper hole where it's his political correctness which you're laughing at i yeah. think which is key and you're laughing at david in that sense he's a true comedy character i argue in that instance yeah. and again but, and i, mean, I that just link... oh, go ahead sorry yeah, sorry. But that, I mean, that link you made there with, with Monty Python, as I said, is a real interesting one. I mean, I struggle, I find the scenes of Monty Python, there are certain scenes which are hilarious and formally very good as well. But I mean, Monty Python, I mean, it's a group of Oxbridge men, you know what I mean? Again, pointing down and making, uh, we, I, think a lot, I think a lot of people in the UK struggle with it, especially today. I mean, you've got John Cleese, who's essentially a nutter now, isn't he? The way yeah. he sort of comes out. Well, with, and I think it's... I think things have to be read in their context. And I, yeah, I don't think Monty Python, in fact, John Cleese gives an amazing uh, eulogy for Graham Chapman that I use to teach speech writing. But in the right, middle of yeah. it, he talks about all of these horrible things that Chapman used to do to women, like crawl around like a dog and sniff their ankles. I mean, things that are just very out of, t- and I have to tell them, look, like I, 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 
there are other speech. I mean, we don't just use white men, obviously that's important, but it's yeah. such a textbook, good speech. And then we just have to talk about the fact that like, look, it's the same thing with the office. I mean, you can do a close read of this scene because it's so interesting and not then apologize for the broader office, which in most cases just authorizes white privileged and title, right? It makes, it makes Ricky no, Gervais a yeah, sympathetic definitely. character when he should have been yeah. fired. No, That's kind yeah. of what bothers everybody about the office, but it was also the nineties. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I think that's something that hopefully the book tries to get across. It's and I think you mentioned it there. It's that formal. It's the formal structure yeah, which is right. key. I think that the form and it's it's not a it's um and this is something that um I think I mentioned to you before that Matthew Fliss Fledder does brilliantly in his algorithmic desire. Um, he wrote a lovely review for the book and he he says about it's structures that 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 aren't total and like whole but the actual structures are based upon their own inconsistency, which gives body to the structure. It's their own contradictions. And I think that's one thing that this sort of formal analysis does really well is it highlights the inconsistencies, the problems in false forms of universality, such as political correctness and those sort of associated ideologies. Um, yeah. And again, also yeah, as we're seeing like, new yeah. like comedians of color emerge on the scene, Amanda Seals is excellent. Dulce Sloan is really good. You're seeing new, unfortunately for a long time, only white men were doing the comedy. And so you had to work within a certain frame. So Ricky Gervais was the most progressive comic at the time, because other than you didn't see black women comics in the nineties. I mean, there were a few, but they were not popular. And now you do have other choices. So no one's saying this is the only way to do subversive comedy, but for its time and the popularity of the office, it's a very important set of jokes to analyze, right? No, definitely. And there was, I mean, I'm going to say, I don't want to get his second name wrong, but Daniel, you know, the lad, uh, the British actor, fantastic, a uh, great British actor. Um, uh, the black Harry lad Potter? Who's in, no, no, um, uh, no, get, um, uh, he's in uh, uh, the Jordan Peele film, um, Get Out. Is it, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, Daniel yeah. Uh, Daniel. Case. Oh, anyway, I'll look it up. Daniel he recently Kaluuya. Did, Kaluuya. Yeah, Kaluuya. And he does an SNL. He recently did, he hosted SNL, I think, for you guys on Saturday. And in oh, his I gave open up monologue. On Maybe I'll go back well, to it. Right, okay. Well, if you can get this, just what, you'll catch it on Twitter. It's only about three minutes. But in his open monologue, he talks about someone, he says, you know, people say to me, which is worse, black um, UK racism or, or American racism? And he says, well, the problem with UK racism was that it was so bad they had to go to other countries to create racist societies. Uh, so you get like, and it's obviously he delivers it and it's funny, but um, yeah, so you get this whole, so he's this idea, well, it was, it, racism was that bad in the UK that even white people in the UK couldn't stomach it. We had to go to Australia, New Zealand. Right, right, we had right. to colonize the rest of the world in order to make sure, in order to create better forms of racism. And then again, I thought, you know, this whole position of the teller, the content, the yeah. way in which he's observed it around there, around the notion of bad racism, like he's performing, you know, he's performing, you know, he's, he's, he's in the position of a bad racism by saying, well, you know, the UK is worse. That's why we had to go abroad and create even worse racism type thing. Um, yeah. yeah, it's really interesting. And I think he brings it to light quite nicely there, some of these contradictions. Well, well I mean, it, I really enjoyed the book. I think, um, I think the analysis is excellent. It really gets you thinking. And again, I mean, what is funny is always subjective. So I always play clips for people because structurally, the comedy is really well done or poorly done. And it's, it's good to see those contrasts. And then people will say, well, that was funny. It wasn't funny. And it's like, well, yeah, but your reaction to whether something is funny is different than the argument about how it moves. So you can totally agree with all the moves and still come as, a, away and say, this isn't a funny joke. No, right. Of so yeah, you may watch the office and not find it funny, but 
we ju- I just want to be clear. Yeah. Nobody's telling you what to find funny. We're just telling you no, that as course. analysts, we're looking yes. at, at style and form and trying no, to make yeah, smart things. Yeah. Definitely. A- I think when it beds, when it lays bare the contradictions, the right. sort of, right, you know, right. that's, I think that's when we're in, and like you said, you know, I've been showing this joke in, in seminars and lectures for about five years and it's, it's amazing how you can, one year can find it hilarious, another yep, year, like precisely. the room's stone cold and you probably, yeah, that's what you were getting at earlier. And you're like, oh, oh, I show oh, a Chris Rock bit to a group of people um, for a professional development seminar last year and they hated it. And I, right, yeah. people in my classes love those jokes. Yes. No, and then yeah, I played it for yeah. them and it was like, this is disgusting. Why are you playing this? And I was no, like, oh, I better, yeah. <laughs> I better rethink yeah. my audience next time, you know? Right, yeah. The book is excellent. The theory laid out is really accessible. It, it, for anybody looking on a fun psychoanalysis uh, read, I really enjoyed it. I don't always enjoy people who use psychoanalysis. It's kind of dense. But the fact that it was laid out so clearly and led up to this rather like large case study um, was really enjoyable. So do you want to, so I can't re- recommend the book enough. Sorry, it's after we hit an hour, I start, my tongue starts to get twisty. And I just want to once again say we've been talking to Jack Black, author of Race, Racism, and Political Correctness in Comedy from Rutledge 2021. So before we wrap, Jack, what else have you got on the plate? And you want to say anything else before I tell people how they can get a copy of the book? Uh, uh, no. Uh, so I, uh, <laughs> I'm working on, well, I say that, no. Uh, I'm working on another book at the minute. Um, again, um, this, one's on, uh, this one's on belief. Uh, I'm trying to draw. I'm, well, I'm, tr- yeah, I'm trying to draw upon uh, Robert Fowler's notion of interpassivity. Um, mm. So I think it, take, it takes some of the ideas I explore here. Particularly, I think it's going to extend a little bit more on the relationship between subversion and perversion, um, and how belief can be. Uh, uh, I don't think we have enough belief, perhaps. Well, mm. we don't have impossible beliefs at the mm. moment, which is something that the books, uh, the books, going to be looking at. We've lost. We've lost impossible beliefs. We don't believe in the impossible anymore. Um, so I think that's one thing that the book's um, the book's going to be looking looking at. Great! I'm excited. So we have a future book interview slated. Hopefully, as soon yeah. as you finish yeah. it, you let me know. Yeah. Well, hopefully, by me saying it, that means I'll definitely get it finished. But I think <laughs> You've committed to uh, like yeah, six to thou- six to nine thousand people that you're going to write yeah. this book. So okay. they're all eagerly okay. awaiting. Don't forget them okay. as you're writing. Oh, thank you. All right. And just a reminder, everyone, if you are not interested in grabbing a copy for yourself, um, one of the very cool things you can do is ask your local library to purchase a copy, whether that's university or city library. But again, budgets are tight right now. So even better if you can buy them a copy so that this can stay on the shelves for lots of people to read for decades to come. It's a great way to recognize the work being done, get it out to more people and keep um, presses like Rutledge and the New Books Network up and running because most of this stuff is not done for a very big profit. Academics make almost no money on our books. Presses make almost no money. And New Books Network is entirely volunteer. So something nice you can do if you would like. Other than that, uh, Jack, if anybody wants to reach out and chat or learn more about you, where's the best place to send them? Uh, Twitter. I'm on Twitter. So I think uh, Jack St. Black um, uh, or my email address. Um, be there. Yeah, do I need to say that? Is that going to be included or... You can if you want. Otherwise, yeah, they can just uh, Google yeah, J, yeah, J. Yeah, J. Black. Yeah, just go. Yeah, if you Google me, you'll, you'll see me on there. That's always a bit. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah, wonderful. Yeah. yeah so uh, we love to start dialogues. I mean, so if you're listening, have thoughts, have comments, reach out to us. You can find me on social media and on Gmail at rhetorically, like always. And it would be great to hear from you. Thank you so much for listening. Stay safe and mask up. Thank you so much.